Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. Today, I've got the pleasure of having with me uh, Rachel Dwyer, who works at the University of Sheffield in research services. And I first met uh, Rachel many, many years ago. I don't even remember. I can't remember when exactly, but when I was working in the Faculty of Science at the University of Sheffield and uh, Often, I will ask Rachel to come on some of the workshops that I was running to give us some insight about research funding. So I think that for a lot of researchers in the early stages of their career, the, the consideration of how to access research funding is, is one that is very, very difficult. So I, I think that having you on board for this conversation is really interesting. So Rachel, tell us a little bit about yourself, how one does become involved in working in research services. Well, it's the realisation of a lifelong dream, Sandrine. No, um, it's uh, like any of these things, it's quite a diverse uh, diverse path that's got me here. But So I've worked in research management between the university and the NHS for nearly 10 years now, between different roles, because research support and research offices in their various forms are very diverse. Prior to that, I was working in research, mainly psychological research, and then applied health research in kind of local community settings. And I had this moment where... As part of the unit I was in, we were quite a supportive unit. So we do seminars each week. And as a research assistant, I was thinking, well, what can I do a seminar on? And I just managed to get my project through the research ethics and governance process in the NHS to get it started. And it fascinated me as somebody that was very new to this level of kind of sort of paperwork and the work that went alongside the research itself that then made me look for research management jobs out of moving out of research. But, but that may be the point that has led me in this direction. So at, at the moment, what, what is the focus of what you are trying to do in supporting academics and researchers and also in supporting the institution in meeting its uh, funding target? So my current role, my, my current job title, as it were, is Head of Faculty Research Support for Medicine, Dentistry and Health. And as you say, that's based in our central research services at the university. So many universities, organisations will have a central office where they pull together lots of professional support staff who look after research management aspects. Primarily, what I do is, is work in research support where we're looking to grow our research activity. So you mentioned research funding. So that's one way that we actively grow our research um, activity at the university. We help navigate, understand the research funding landscape, but we also help with the nuts and bolts of those applications that our researchers are trying to submit. And alongside that, we have lots of information we use from the external environment to kind of direct maybe research strategy within the organisation or to help an individual research group or, or certainly a fellowship applicant think about what's their own personal research strategy 
and where's the direction of travel for their research. Specifically, I work with medicine, dentistry and health because that's the name of one of our faculties. But because I sit centrally in the research office, I sit alongside other colleagues who have the same job title, but for different disciplines. So it's a very cross-disciplinary role. I work with colleagues from engineering and for science, and certainly for those areas of medicine, dentistry and health research that sit on the boundary, because the boundaries we operate in are or organisational, but a lot of the research funding or, or research themselves may have a much more what we would call cross-disciplinary kind of multidisciplinary perspective that they want to pursue. And so from a research office point of view, we can support that because we sit outside their department. So day to day, a day might look like I might have a meeting with an academic to talk about a particular call that they've seen or to talk to them about, well, I'm thinking about a fellowship. What does a fellowship look like? Through to sitting on a committee meeting in the university to talk about research strategy and what does our overall portfolio of research funding look like? and Where do we think the funding is going to come for? from next for the funders and then there's plenty of operational stuff as well so again the nuts and bolts I keep referring to it too but it's the stuff that pins together everything that we're trying to do in order for that research project to happen so yeah diverse role um, to say the least and where I sit my role doesn't fully represent everything our research office does it covers lots of other elements that people may be familiar with so thinking around well how do I submit my application how do I get it approved then how do I get contracts in place to make sure the money arrives and my partners are happy with the agreements we put in place? Things around IP to clear the pathway for an academic to kind of pursue their research in the longer term. And then other things which are maybe less nuts and bolts, but a bit more growth focused. Things around helping our academics understand well, what's impact and how do they achieve it. And specialist knowledge for particular schemes, say translational research or EU funding. And all of that sits alongside Researcher development, which is quite an important thing that we have at the University of Sheffield, which is not looking at research planning or research funding capture in isolation, but thinking about it as an important set of skills that researchers, early career researchers in particular, need to develop and learn through experience in order to reach the success that, that they've got in their mind's eye in the longer term. You'll you remember that in some of the sessions that I used to run at the university, one of often my message to researchers was make friends with people in the research office because they're there to support you. And it's true that often, especially early career researchers, maybe less with academics, there is a sense of anonymity of people who work in the research office. And maybe you disconnect that they, these are really approachable people. So can you explain to our listener really how, as an early career researcher, how do you approach, you know, what is the, the mechanism to go and make the best use of, of people who work in research offices? Yeah, so, so some of that will depend on your location and organisations are structured differently as well. I mean, certainly for us in Sheffield, we don't sit remotely in our research office. We have people like myself who are very connected to our individual faculties, but we now have a, a wider network of research support staff that sit within faculties and departments and we're connected as one big team as well. So it may be that you may not associate somebody you're working with with the research office, but if you're in an institution that's organised like Sheffield, you will be talking to people that are also networked into their own professional staff networks. So I absolutely recognise what you're saying. If you're new to a large institution, such as a university, the location that you sit in on a day-to-day -day basis in your department feels huge. But then actually, there's an even bigger institution that you're part of and making those connections is challenging. So looking out for emails, email circulations um, that may come with research topics 
attached, looking on the websites and asking colleagues, have you had any support for your research application on XYZ or have you found any useful contacts? It's not that dissimilar to how you would operate in an academic networking scenario. You're looking for the people that can help you with your tasks. The difference is that, or maybe not a difference, I think from, from my point of view and in my experience of research support, I'm always up for a conversation. Communication is important in both directions. But even if you're not quite sure what your question is, it's worth reaching out with a, a short summary of what it is that you're hoping to do or what it is that you're thinking about. And then ask for input, advice or signposting to somebody that might that might help. Some of the signposting we do won't just be to other professional support colleagues, but it might also be to academics who are taking particular leadership roles in, in, in areas. So particular leadership role in fellowships across the faculty. They might be outside your scientific space or your disciplinary space, but they would still be somebody to have a, a conversation with about whatever it is that you're scoping out or or the more specific details of, of what's the, the task that you want to get done for a particular grant application if you're at that stage as well. I mean, one of the challenges for a lot of researchers is that they don't really know where to start. And that's why often probably there is a resistance to contact people like yourself or your colleagues in research services because they don't really... They don't really know where to apply, whether they're ready, whether what they need to do. And maybe the resistance to, to contact people in research services is that they feel that they have to already have a package of a fellowship or a grant of something already substantial. What do you really need early on when somebody first contacts you to feel engaged in supporting that person? So from my point of view, uh, a short introduction about who they are, where they are and what they're looking to do. And the question is, is there anyone that can help? That's not an infrequent email that I get in my inbox and, and that other colleagues will have as well. What we're trying to do is, is build a relationship. Now, it would be I couldn't possibly say that that we've got a relationship with every single researcher that, that works within even my area of medicine, dentistry and health. But actually, we do know a lot. And we may have worked with people quite closely on particular grant applications as well. So what you're looking to do is start to build relationships with those people in your environment who are going to support you and your career over the longer term. Now, you might have, as I say, a very immediate tasks that need sorting, but you also may be looking to build that, that longer term relationship. And that might not just be people in research services, that might be department managers or, or team leaders in your department, other professional staff who will also have experience of, of working on research or supporting people or seeing people do research and, and submit research bids as well. So yeah, re just reach out with, with that. Here's who I am. Here's what I'd like to be doing can you help? And through that, we, we can kind of work through, well, what is it specifically that you're looking for at this point in time? What do people really need to avoid in order to build good relationship with people from research services? That's a really hard one. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm particularly curious about people. So I'm always up to find out more about people. I suppose it, I mean, the, the key thing would be anything that's short notice or anything that doesn't allow or doesn't consider the fact that the person you're approaching may also already have lots of things on their plate at this current time. And, and that can happen sometimes, especially when somebody's first interaction with us is in the high pressure scenario of trying to submit an application, as opposed to a much earlier conversation where they might be scoping out or letting somebody know that they're, I'm going to be doing this. What do I need to know? What is it that I'm not aware of at the moment? So I think for me, time would be the key one. And also that 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 genuine approach in, in terms of apologies, you may not be the right person for my query, but can you help me find out the right person that is? 
as opposed to a blank expectation that 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 you will know everything because in, in certainly in professional research support across all the disciplines there's a huge amount to know if you're a postdoc or you've done a couple of postdoc and you're you, you're at the point of considering applying for fellowship or considering okay what kind of small grants can i access And one of the things that often people really worry uh, about is, is my CV good enough? The, the lack of knowledge about how your CV compared to others can be uh, something that inhibits people to apply for funding or to apply for a fellowship. So, I mean, you have lots and lots of CVs of, of academics, fellows who, that, that comes on your desk and What, what is really, and obviously depending on the discipline, depending on the stage, everybody's got a different level, but how do you assess yourself and through the conversations that you have with people, whether they are at the right, right stage to apply for a specific funding? Oh, good question. I would say don't be shy. I think the, the key thing to any type of research grant process, be it your CV, be it the research application, is you're going to have to talk to people about it and you're going to have to share it with more people than you would perhaps normally share another piece of work, especially when it's in its earlier draft stages. So going back to what you said before around how best to approach somebody, well, waiting until you've got a fully formed proposal that somebody can critique as an email starter isn't necessarily the best approach. So I would say asking others is, is your starting point because we very it's hard for us to judge ourselves and we often under anticipate or, or underestimate what we have achieved to date or maybe don't properly sell that. So what you're doing when you're asking others, others is to kind of get them to have a look at the CV and ask, well, what am I saying about myself? Where are my gaps? It might be things that that say I would be looking for, well, has somebody shown that they've got a couple of papers where they are either first author or where they've published away from their PhD supervisor, those types of things. Or it might be conferences that are actually international conference rather than a, a, a national or a more local conference as well. So somebody else may be able to better see the gaps in your CV that either give you something very practical to work towards filling Or actually, are things that you have done, you just haven't maybe thought that that they could be included. So the examples I give there are very obvious academic outputs. I mean, I would hope everybody's putting their publications and their soup conferences on them on their MCVs, but things like showing a, a degree of maybe potential leadership skills, you know, have you organized a local meeting for early career researchers around a particular topic or, or be that for career development or be that something more scientific, scientific focused. So those types of activities as well. You have, what you're asking people to have a look at your CVs is, is Where are the gaps? What, what am I talking? How am I selling myself? But you're also potentially going to be approaching people that have those fellowships or maybe a couple of stages on in the career to where you want to go, maybe have their their first major grant or, or what have you. And more senior colleagues who also maybe not have not gone through the process more recently, but are the ones sitting on funder panels and the ones reviewing the applications from the funders when, when they're going through those decision-making processes. I would always say, yeah, look for people that have maybe recent experience of working with a particular funder that you might have in mind as well. Comparing and contrasting. Now, this, is, this probably comes with a bit of caveat because 
it, it depends on the type of person you are. You don't want to scare yourself at this point. This is all developmental. This is all positive. This is all you looking for constructive ways that you can develop your CV in order to kind of achieve what you want to achieve. But most funders will profile their current fellowships, fellows on their on their web pages. They want to talk and, and kind of encourage their, their fellows, their community of fellows. You may see short videos about who the fellow is and, and where they've come from. And then the internet we have in the world of research gates and um, linkedin and publicly available university profiles it's not that challenging to identify what somebody's profile looks like that they're putting out to the, the external world versus a grant that they've got recently that information is publicly available as well as on other academic networking sites as well yeah. can i ask you rachel so you may have postdocs who are writing their first fellowship and there, the proposal itself may be very good and all that, but actually the, the CV of that person really isn't quite there yet, apart from people will say, well, publication. But again, depending from one discipline to another, the, the amount of publication, if you're a biologist or if you're a chemist, is very different. So for people knowing the amount of publication that you need for a specific funding call, is, is there a way apart from asking other people but what, in general what what do the founders really want to see so what, you, what you're trying to demonstrate whether it's through your publication record or through your conference presentations or anything else on your cv grants that you've worked on previously as a postdoc or anything that you've been able to kind of dip your toe in the water of being a co-investigator the funders are looking to see that you are the right person to continue this piece of work not only because it comes from your kind of training and your experience of a particular scientific discipline, but also that you, you have the kind of practical experience of delivering a project for others. So I'm, I'm totally avoiding your question about the number of, of publications. <laughs> because in 10 years, I've not found or, or it's not been a useful or helpful kind of partly because, as you, as you say, even a funding panel in the main is often looking at lots of people from lots of different disciplines, unless you're a very, very, very niche funder. So even a funder or a funding panel wouldn't necessarily have a, a guide, but you're looking for something that shows track record and experience so that the project that what you're saying you want to do and can do you've got the evidence to kind of indicate that that is a possible and that is achievable so yes I, I would love to be able to give you kind of a, a template models and um, in every discipline but it is it is a judgment call and it is a judgment call that you need to make but also with the expert input of those that have been through the process or are the process in terms of being the academic reviewers and then the academic panel members who are making these funding decisions yeah it's a very fair point you may be a postdoc working with a pi who doesn't think that you are ready but you may feel that you are ready <laughs> And obviously there is a tension and you may want to apply for a fellowship and you may be told that, well, you're, you're never going to get a fellowship on this or there is no chance and so on. What advice would you give to, to a postdoc like that who is, and I mean, many PIs are very supportive, but we, we do hear about PIs who may not necessarily create an environment where postdocs feel empowered to move on to the next stage. So if you're working with somebody who doesn't ease the way for you to the next stage, or they may, their assessment may be completely fair enough and you may feel ready yourself, but actually the output that you have may actually not be there. 
what, what advice do you give to to postdoc in that context? Yeah, it is tricky, isn't it? So I, I, I would agree with you. I've it's rare that I've seen this happen. More often, you've got people that are working in very supportive environments. But if you're applying for your first independent grant or your first independent fellowship, this is about you and your activity. So your current supervisor or kind of research lead may be involved in that process, but you're really starting to step out on your own here. So that's where you're looking for multiple voices to help you make your decision. So you're talking to other people those that have had the funding, those that are in maybe, as I talked about, leadership roles in other parts of the university. You're getting lots of input into making or helping you make this judgment about when you're ready. Now, when you're ready to submit a grant or a fellowship, you're not doing this on your own as a private entity. You're doing it with the institution. The institution needs to support you and it's going to hold the money for you and it's going to provide you the facilities to do the work as well. So you do need that institutional support, but that may not come from your current supervisor or your current kind of research lead. There may be opportunities to collaborate elsewhere and it might not be your kind of primary desired outcome, but through those conversations, you may open up other avenues for submitting collaborative grants that that take you outside of your current environment. And that might be a positive step for you and a positive way forward. It's it is hard because it's, we we can we can be quite critical of ourselves. Or I have met some over over what's the word unrealistic kind of expectations of maybe how, how where they are or, or or how much they have achieved to date. But but yeah, that's where I think you're you're looking for lots of multiple voices here to kind of then make your own personal judgment around your career and your next step forward and 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 find that support from 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 an from an area and that support might not just be yes go ahead submit that application that support might be well actually these are some of the areas that actually might want to consider developing first let's chat again in six months or 12 months time one of the challenge when you're stepping out of your postdoc is, you know, often the need to work on something that's slightly different from your PI. And often people say, well, how do I get pilot data to be able to write, you know, this fellowship application? And, and again, you may be in a lab where it's just fine to do another set of experiments and your PI is absolutely fine with it, but it's not always the case. So what really could be the mechanism for a postdoc who needs to get to access, maybe learn a new technique or do some preliminary experiment to be able to write that first application? How could they go around the limitation that could exist in their research environment? Yeah, so that that is tricky. That is that is a real. It can be a real headache, especially yeah, depending on the the financial scenario of of their current lab as well. I'm going to go down the collaboration route again with this one. So, given in a previous answer, sometimes it is just not possible at the current time. And when you're thinking about planning your career and moving your next steps, you've not got a couple of years necessarily to wait and see if if the scenario changes or more money is found down the back of a sofa somewhere. So you're looking for active ways that you can start to move forward here. And as I say, that that, that maybe through collaborations with other labs, you might be thinking, well, actually, if I work towards a collaboration with somebody else, that might take me to a PI or a lead investigator step slightly later than I was intending, but it still gets me moving and it still gets me moving that demonstrates independence from my PhD supervisor or my current PI. It's a tricky one to manage because you're not trying to run away from them as fast as you can, because this is a solid, hopefully very positive collaboration that will see you through a, a lot of your career. But what you're looking to do is provide evidence in um, black and white on a CV that shows that you you 
are doing activities out with your relationship with that PR and collaboration can be a way to do that. There are, I mean, there are on occasion small internal funds, certainly for early career researchers, maybe through your, maybe not through your research routes, but sometimes through philanthropy. So donations the university can get, often sometimes smaller pots of money, but not a lot. I I tend not to talk about that too much because I think that gives people false hope. And then, and then that can become internalised as in, well, I can't find money, therefore I can't move forward. And actually you may be looking for more creative ways to, to, to find an environment in which yeah, you can start to, to make some steps out on your own. Every institution is different. But what are the really the key steps that researchers need to consider in going from, oh, I've got this amazing idea, okay, uh, there may be some funding available to actually submitting something. In your many years' experience of working with early career researchers and academic what are the things that often people completely forget <laughs> that is part of the process or sort of elements that often are hurdles that people maybe may not have anticipated? I think my starting point is never expect everybody to know everything because you look at the average, average workload for an academic and it's it's vast and multifaceted and that doesn't allow a lot of time to becoming expert in every process or every funding call that, that they might be trying to target. But I think the common mis- common common things that I see that that I wish would happen more are um, or common mistakes would be people not talking to others about their proposal. So again, a common theme, but not talking about or sharing their application with everybody through the development process. So the feedback they get can be quite loud, sometimes conflicting, sometimes not that useful because it's too close to the deadline. In that, talking to your research support staff as well, talking about your ideas because they can provide pointers and explore particular elements with you, especially around the costings and things like that. Have you thought about including this person? Have you thought about building in contingency for this, this, that and the other? And when it comes to sharing applications too, like especially fellowship applications and um, feedback I have had, quite strong feedback from senior senior colleagues, has, has been their frustration when they get a fellowship proposal too close to the deadline because they can see major elements that might need reworking in the scientific plan, in the scope or the scale, but there's nothing that they can do at that point. So yeah, leaving leaving it a little bit too late. And then in terms of other common pitfalls, I suppose key things, so critical things that I think read the guidance more than once. <laughs> so I, I, my job is to read the guidance, but even then I can read what sometimes is a large volume of material and miss things because I, I pick up other things. So when you're thinking about and looking at a research application, keep referring back to the guidance just to reflect and check that you've got everything there. Start talking early about the costs. So I would say that, of course, in my role, but actually it can help provide a useful framework for fleshing out the details of your proposal and making making you think of things that, that perhaps you hadn't considered. And also talking about money is a great way to get people's attention. So at that point, you'll get your lab manager's attention, you'll get your collaborator's attention, but early. So you can still have productive conversations with them around the shape of the proposal and what you're planning to do as well. Um, and then two other things. So one would be um, pay attention to the lay summary or the, the shorter, maybe non-confidential summary that most grant applications have now, that can feel like oh, it's a nice, easy thing to do at the end when I'm doing my references, which always takes longer than you think. We all know that. Um, but you think, oh, well, I'll come back to that when I've got everything else fleshed out. But common advice I hear is, is, is very much to, to give that more time than you think perhaps it warrants, because it's a real trigger for a lot of the rest of the assessment and review process. 
administrative staff will use that to then dictate um, in part who gets to review your application or where it goes in the next stage's review. And then your panel member will need that first. And at that point, if you've got them on board because you've written a good, persuasive, clear lay summary, it'd be easier for them to advocate for you at the panel meeting as opposed to slightly frustrating them because it's not clear or obvious what you want to do. And now you've got to read several other pages in order to understand the proposal. And then my final thing would be pay attention to the submission process, especially if this is your first application. Often funders have different online systems. They ask for different sign-offs. So so you may press submit, but it doesn't go to the funder. There may be other people internally that have to sign that off, say your head of department or your research office. So make sure you've got an understanding of those details and talk through that with your research office so you're clear. And so then you can make sure that any department colleagues or supervisors are available to press submit when, when you are ready to as well. So what are really the, the things that you see happen where people you know, have, have intended to submit by a certain deadline, the deadline of the founders or the deadline set by the university? And wh- what tends to kind of be the missing things that just doesn't happen? It's like, okay, this grant was written or this fellowship is written, but it doesn't actually make, make, make it out. I would see what you mean, as in, as in doesn't get, um, it doesn't leave the building, as it were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So does it, so I will say that's rarely happens. It very okay. rare. I don't know. I could think of an instance where that has happened, but it can often be quite a fraught, stressful experience because we don't build in enough time for those last minute things. We all did it when we were at university. We may have submitted assignments two minutes before the deadline and, and what have you running up the street or now pressing the online system. It, it's human nature. We work to a deadline, um, but setting yourself an earlier deadline as you would with any other piece of work, is is the same for a research grant application because those last few moments can be fraught. And if you're relying on colleagues who are not in the same room as you to do certain tasks and you can't see that, the stress is real. So allow plenty of time for people to do their other parts. And what they will be doing is checking to make sure that you haven't missed anything so that your application doesn't get rejected. And the things that they're checking are the costs, but also have you attached all your attachments? Have you uploaded all the documents that the form is expecting you to upload? And so allow people time to do that because that will then also reduce your stress because the application, you'll see the application go to the funder ahead of the deadline, well ahead of the deadline where possible. So for, you know, for postdoctoral researchers who are really, really keen on getting a, a fellowship, they may be, obviously, they, they don't want to put their eggs in the same basket and want to make sure that they write several applications to have the best chance of actually being able to carry on. And obviously, there may be several schemes that they can apply for and the sort of timeline may be very different. And there is always a risk of rushing application because you have too many at the same time. And so again, I mean, doing things very early on is is always a good advice, but how can they be really strategic in terms of not overstretching themselves when they, ideally you would want to have a few months between different applications, but that's in an ideal world. And we know realities are not like that. So what advice could you give them? The the approach I see work the most is when somebody has a long-term view. So now this is difficult, especially when you think about, well, where's where's salary going to come from in the case of a fellowship? But I would always try and encourage people, as you would with any career planning, to have a long-term view to not just where do you want your career path to go, what institutions do you want to work with, what roles do you want, but also 
what funding schemes and calls are going to get you there. So you have that in parallel. That's difficult to do. I do acknowledge that. But what that allows somebody to do is to see which funding application calls are going to come around in what time cycles. So on the whole, in in my 10 years, funding doesn't change dramatically within a short period of time, especially when you're looking at some of our larger funders like UKRI and Wellcome Trust and NIHR and others. So the fellowship schemes that they have or the project grant schemes that they have tend to be quite steady over a number of years. And and it would be unusual for them suddenly to be, as Wellcome Trust are doing at the moment i will add to be doing a big redesign a total redesign which which may change we know don't don't know yet but which may change what you expect and that way you can plan them which fellowships you apply for in an order that that allows you to take consideration of other things like when are you going to be publishing papers when have you got critical time points in your contract this is all very ideal world i, I do acknowledge that and but the information is out there and when you see a call that's just been launched with a deadline in, say, three to six months, actually, we probably knew about that deadline from the moment it closed at the same time last year. So it is worth taking a step back and just getting to know the funding landscape in terms of what the deadlines and the funding is going to be. Always go quality over quantity. But having said that, you do then you do want your programme of, of which funders am I going to target and when am I going to target And in that calculation, you want to be building in, well, what are the rules for resubmission? If I am rejected from this call, do I have to wait a period of time before I can reapply? Does that affect any post years postdoc rules that some funders, not all, thankfully, but some funders still have? So these are the types of logistics you want to be thinking over the longer term so that you don't, hopefully, don't end up in a bottleneck where all of a sudden you've got three funding, three large funding calls for fellowships to apply for. And this feels like your last chance to do it. There are often rules for multiple submissions to the, to different funders for the same proposal, even if it's tweaked slightly. They tend to be looser for fellowships because there is a recognition that it's it, you're doing it for career development. So it's different. But if you're thinking then also of project grants or other activities, you will need to check very carefully on the rules for multiple submissions during the same review period. And the review period itself can take months. So that's something you also need to be factoring into your kind of timetable or your plan of which which funders are the ones that you want to explore and then target over a longer period of time. So another challenge, uh, we keep talking about challenges. It's terrible, really, but (laughs) it is very hard. So Again, one of the, the, the learning for you know all researchers is to really adapt and really tailor each application to the founder to really respond to the, the big picture of what the specific founder wants to. And, and again, it's something that when you've not written many applications, it's really challenging because you have this one big idea for your next step and you may not necessarily have actually a vision of the future. And depending on the founder that you're going to apply first, you may have to not, I don't know, it's almost frame the application for that specific founder. What sort of thing do you see done well or not so well in the way people are trying to squeeze their research ID into a particular fund and then moving and kind of redress it to another founder? Well, I guess, so I I think the first point there is there is no discipline, a scientific discipline that we deal with that has limitless funders. 
So you do want to bear that in mind. This is this is you representing yourself to one of a handful of funders that will potentially continue to support your career. And behind that, you're not just talking the funder as, as an abstract body that we don't interact with for anything else. The people that that funder will send your application to are your scientific community, peers, peer review for that process. And then the panel itself will also be made up of people from your scientific community. And so people, these people as well, as, as you may well already do yourself, maybe working for multiple funders as peer review. I say working, you know, a lot of this is, is part of the academic effort. It's, it's not a formal role, separate, slightly different for a panel member themselves. And so do think about that because this may be the same, this is the same community of people that will be reviewing your work and, and this is your kind of reputation out there. I think in terms of fitting or finding that fit, like you say, turning it, changing it slightly so it fits what this funder wants to do versus what this funder wants to do. Yeah, there, there can be some some things, some elements to consider because every funder has stakeholders, be that their committee members or their charity, those people that donate if it's a charity funder, be it the UK government, if it's UKRI or, or Department of Health or others. So everybody has somebody that they need to report back to and they will have somewhere said what are the really important things that we want to do with this funding. So if you're heading in that direction, I think you're okay. I think from my experience, the, the, the science leads this. This is a scientific assessment process. And so if the science is good, then you stand, then, then that should be your real focus as long as you've understood the differences between the funders. What a common one that we come across is, is making sure that there is no overlap. So the Medical Research Council and the National Institute for Health Research, they can sometimes look like they fund the same things on first glance, but actually they really don't. And actually they work alongside each other. So they work very hard to fund, co-fund in overlapping spaces, but they're not overlapping others. And that's common across a lot of our, our, our funders in the health space. So you're probably not going to get away with it if you feel that it's a bit too much of a hard squeeze. That's a very important point, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's all part of the same. It, it's the same people. It's the same community. It's the same environment and context that all our research happens within then they're not isolated from each other yeah if it is if it feels like a really hard squeeze you then have to ask yourself is this really the project that I want to end up doing if it gets funded does it still take me where I want to go with the research outputs that I'll have at the end of this the comment that you made about the the, the research community often academics being on 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 panels on different funders I think is really important because in some ways, if they see the same application multiple times and the application hasn't improved from one panel to another, it's quite a put-off, really. And they're probably less likely to be even more supporting the next time around that they see it if they can't see that whatever feedback has been provided on an application, actually nothing has been taken into consideration. So that's something really to, you know, to pay attention, to actually make use of whatever feedback you receive from the funders that you've applied for. 100% would agree with that. The feedback can be difficult to take at times when it comes, when we don't often enjoy that as, as human beings. But you're right, that submitting a grant application to the same funder or the same panel or, or similar funders and similar panels is not an iterative process because you may not be invited to resubmit. Or as you say, if you resubmit but haven't, the first thing they'll do, even before they assess your, your proposal sort of fresh will be to look to see if you've addressed the feedback given and you often tend to have to note that it is a resubmission 
because they're looking for those. One question that I have is about whether there is something that's always surprised you when you see a proposal in terms of mistakes that people always make. And that's really frustrating for people like yourself having to go through and send them back to, to be submitted or something that really you, you think, well, why don't people just get it? <laughs> that you see over and over in applications. It's a lot to navigate and it's a lot to orientate yourself within. Although it feels a huge amount at this time point when you're already also got to be kind of designing what's my scientific vision, where do I want to go with this, what my independence, following up all these leads for collaborations as well, having to then understand this element of the business. I suppose some of the common reasons that I see applications just not hitting the bar or just not, not getting there are actually some of the simplest. So not being clear once you've read somebody's proposal why why do you want to do this project what's the benefit here even if you're from that discipline or an aligned discipline if it's not written down you can't assume that somebody knows that you either think they don't know that or they haven't thought it important enough to say and neither of those things are going to act in your favor when when somebody's trying to make a judgment on on whether your application crosses a bar or not so so why um not explain why it's needed for us in in medicine dentistry and health research the clinical need even if you're not near the clinic yet but being able to kind of demonstrate that if i do this piece of research in the laboratory now that it will have a clinical implication and a clinical impact further down the line that that type of thing is is something that kind of yeah, sometimes it's it's so obvious, but maybe it's so obvious people miss it because they're trying to get the details of the proposal into the application instead. That's the same as the hypothesis. Sometimes the hypothesis just isn't clearly stated up front and centre, setting the stage for all the detail that will follow. And again, these are things easy to omit when you're up against a deadline. You've got an unfamiliar form that's got lots of guidance for what should go in each question. And then following that, I suppose if you've not been clear why or, or missing the hypothesis, it's then there isn't a clear story being told around the logistics and how you're going to do it. So what's going to follow what? And then how does that relate to the funding that you're asking for and the people you've included in their team and how they're going to do that? And that's really difficult detail to describe when you're in the midst of it, trying to knit it all together and tell that story. But that's where reviews from other people can help. Even professional staff, family and friends, lay reviewers, you don't don't have to just be your scientific team or, or your, your academic team because people can go hang on you've just jumped to this this doesn't make sense you've missed this little bit and every one of those little gaps or those little question marks you create adds up to a bigger judgment decision that the funders have to make which is are you going to be a safe pair of hands even if you are you want to you want to minimize that doubt as much as possible. Not everybody will be on board with your application. Not everyone will agree with it. You'll get criticisms because that's the nature of academia. But they don't have to they don't have to fully agree with it. But they just need to know that that you can do it. I think would be what you're trying to aim for there. So I'm going to finish off with two questions. One is about pilot data. How much is enough? That's something that always keeps coming back. And also in terms of the scope of the project, because again, that's something that you know I've heard many times of when your first fellowship, you're not writing for an application for research for the next 10 years. It may be just for the next three. And it's really difficult when it's the first time that you are doing it. So how do you advise you know, early career researchers in really getting the scope right for their project? So in terms of preliminary data, what you're looking to do is show the funders that 
that this is again it's about confidence it's this is something that that looks like it can be well can be done and this looks like there's a reason for us to do it and again that, that's more of a qualitative judgment in terms of the specifics of the scientific program that you you're, you're undertaking rather than a quantitative amount of xyz but that's the reason you're putting the preliminary data in your application to, to to build that confidence and to show that that this is your preliminary data or preliminary data that you have access to that you can then do the next steps that you're including in your proposal and in terms of scope of, of the overall scale whether it be a project grant or a fellowship grant the feedback we see from funders is don't be over ambitious because again they're looking for confidence that if this this money often public money is invested in this piece of research regardless of the outcome of the science that that there is a confidence there that it can be completed by that person in that environment in that time scale. That varies by scheme because a number of years a fellowship may offer you can vary quite dramatically. So again, there isn't a nice model to kind of take off the shelf and apply. But again, going in and learning what you can from previous example applications, from profile pages, from talking to potential fellows. I mean, I, I don't know many fellows that have managed to achieve their fellowship in isolation, and most have benefited from the support and the guidance and the tips that they got from others. So don't feel afraid of kind of approaching people to kind of get that input and that feedback to help you scope and scale. And again, going back to early reviews on proposals, because that is exactly the type of feedback that you'll be looking for. Is this realistic in the time period that we've got, um, that I've got um, another thing the funders often look for is risk mitigation. So this is science. It may not go to plan, not just in the delivery, but in terms of a series of experimental outcomes. And so where there is risk, that's OK. Acknowledge it and, and, and have a kind of a plan B. And some of that will need to be built into your timelines as well, because you're not going to be able to stop and return the clock and then do that bit again. And so if there is risk, build that into how you're kind of the scope and the scale of the proposal um, that you're putting together. Oh, that's very helpful. So, Rachel, thank you very much. Before we finish off, I, I like to ask my, my podcast interviewee about a few tips. So you, you've already shared a huge amount. Is there anything else that you, you will say your five best tips of things that people really, really, really need to think about when they're applying for funding? So, I mean, I'll probably recap some of the ones we've talked about before, but maybe it's a helpful summary. So start scoping early, understand your funders, pay attention to the social media. Even if you're a PhD student or just starting your first postdoc and you see, well, this lab's got a bit of Welcome Trust funding. Let me pay a bit more attention to them. So start scoping early. Talk to as many people as possible about your plans, your senior academics, your peers, your research office, your support staff, and start to get that input and that advice and that thought and get as many reviews as possible when you're actually committing to writing on a page. And if you're in early, early career stage, have a vision for who you want to be as a future academic in five to 10 years time. What, what can you see yourself doing? What's that scientific kind of investigation and that exploration going to be? And keep that in mind because throughout this process, you've had, you've had, I don't know how long, half an hour, an hour's worth of, of top tips here. Well, this is only one small element of the top tips that you'll be thinking about. So remember to kind of keep going back and reflecting on why you're doing this and where do you want to get to and keep that in mind when you get all this feedback that you're going to get along the way. And yeah, finally, as part of that, have that long-term vision. Not just what's my first fellowship that I'm going to apply for, 
but what what might I want to do after the fellowship or what are my alternative fellowships and build that long-term career plan that's going to see you through not just the next 18 months but keep you on track for that longer term vision I mean, I really like this idea. It's funny because I was running a a workshop this week with some researchers and I was talking about the identity, who people want to be as as researchers, who they really want to contribute. And I think that having, keeping that in mind, in in, because also it's about when you're applying for funding, it's not just about the funding to pay your salary. It's, It's also about, do you actually want to do the work? Are you actually interested in these questions? Because if you don't have that drive of wanting to have the answers to the question that you're posing, well, it's a bit tough <laughs> to be carrying on with the work. So actually having honesty with ourselves in, do we really want to do this? I think is really, really important. It is. We talk a lot about what do the funders want? What do the reviewers want? What does my PI want? But it will come through, especially as you're going for, for, for more substantial funding, if this isn't what you want, because you'll miss details and, and it won't be a convincing a convincing sale. So, yeah, that, that's the whole reason you're doing it in the first place. So, so keep that in mind throughout, throughout the whole slightly complicated process. Well, it's a very good word to, to fin- finish off our discussion. Thank you so, so much, Rachel, for accepting to talk with me today. And I'm sure that what you've shared will be a lot of wisdoms for for many researchers who will be listening to this this postcard. Thank you very, very much. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to to invite some new interviewees on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com.